0: The Politics of Sound, with Ian
1: Carnegie. Welcome back. It's July, and you're listening to the Politics of Sound podcast, where my special guest and visitor to the record shop this month is the former health minister, author, and media personality Edwina Currie. One of the most high-profile Conservative MPs during the 80s and 90s, the public hold a particular fascination for her, and for all number of reasons, she's never been far from the headlines. But what lies behind those headlines and which albums does she feel provide the greatest summation of all that she has done? All this and much more on this month's Politics of Sound. Edwina, a very warm welcome to the Politics of Sound podcast for July. We're speaking remotely today. So how are you and where are you?
0: Uh, I'm in the Peak District. I'm up not far from Manchester, about halfway between Manchester and Buxton which we call Buxton around here. And (laughs) uh, how am I? Well, um, uh, not too bad considering I've started eating out, which is lovely. I've uh, I've started planning holidays and travels, but not for a little while yet. Not until August, September. I think we'll be okay by then. So what
1: represents an exciting meal out for Edwina Curry?
0: Oh, an exciting meal out is um, a mixture of friends, possibly with family, and somebody I've not met before who turns out to be interesting, male or female, don't mind.
1: Well, you're not going to a restaurant today. You're going to a record shop, the Politics of Sound record shop, no less, where you're going to get to pick three of your all time favourite albums. Is that going to be a pleasure for you?
0: Oh, it used to be something that uh, I did all the time. And the only limitation was how much money I had, because, you know, when I in the 1960s, when I was a, a teenager, uh, records were expensive. but At the youth club that I used to go to, I appointed myself as disc jockey. And that meant that I got to choose what we heard uh, and, and uh, it meant that I got to know a lot of music we had many opportunities actually in Liverpool because the ships were coming in from all over the world particularly from America and the Caribbean and so we got a lot more records that weren't readily available in Britain
1: and did you know how to work the turntables and all of that sort of thing so there were no breaks
0: we had a dance set I mean we had one <laughs> <laughs> and you were in charge I was in charge and it made splendid noise Uh, there was no problem with that and I got to choose oh we'd do something like three to one we'd do three rock numbers which we could jive to and then we'd have a slow number by the time you got to the slow number you'd figured out who you wanted to do the slow dance with I seem to search my whole day through for any
1: that's part of you I kept a ribbon when I announced that you were going to come on to the politics of sound it was greeted with a lot of excitement why do you think the public is so fascinated with you still
0: I have no idea and the trouble is of course if you know and you try to sort of promote that. You spoil it. Uh, I think it's possibly that I'm an interesting mixture. I'm a scouser, come from Liverpool, grew up in the, in the city. Somebody once said of me, well, you can take Liverpool out of the gal, but you can't take the gal out of Liverpool. Um, and they thought they were being smart and snooty. And I knew they were exactly right. Um, I come from an uh, Orthodox Jewish background. So I have um, a lot of history, a lot of background there. Um, I have classical Hebrew O-level. How about that? As well as Latin. Can't remember anything of either of them these days. It's quite a long time ago. Um, And I've had a fairly diverse career. You know, I went into the House of Commons when there were only 23 women in there out of 656 men. You hear people talk about Prejudice Against Women Now. Boy, they have no idea what they're talking about.
1: It and was a real old boys club.
0: It was a, it was totally an old boys club. And that included on the Labour side, um, where they adapted even more slowly than the Tories did. So, and I've done a few other things. I've had best-selling novels. I've done quite a lot of TV. Celebrity Mastermind.
1: Which you won once or twice? I can't twice. remember. Twice. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> and your, your specialist subjects were?
0: Uh, both of them were about famous women. Uh, One was Marie Curie, the first uh, one that I did. And she was the first woman to win uh, a Nobel Prize. And in fact, she also won a second Nobel Prize. And her daughter won a Nobel Prize as well. They were a a tremendously uh, talented family. She discovered radium and she developed radiotherapy. She developed mobile x-rays, which many people don't know. Um, a, A real heroine. And the second one, We actually recorded it on the 100th anniversary, or thereabouts, of women getting the vote in Britain. So I did Lady Astor, the first woman MP to take her seat uh, in the United Kingdom, who was an American woman, a Virginian. And um, Winston Churchill once said that he, he hated damn Yankees. And she said, Winston, I'm not a Yankee, I'm a Virginian.
1: Now, you're obviously also well known for your political career in the 80s and 90s, but you recently attempted to step back into that political career. You stood for a council seat in Whaleybridge, I think. What prompted that desire to jump back
0: in? Well, this was for Derbyshire County Council. Um, I have been a councillor before. I was a councillor back in the 1970s and 80s in the great city of Birmingham which was a unitary authority, which meant that you control big budgets and you could tell a lot of people what to do, It always appealed to me. And um, on this occasion, I'd been asked to stand before and turned it down because my husband wasn't very well. But um, bless him, we lost him to cancer back in November. And it leaves a horrible void in your life. And then when somebody comes along and says, would you like to have a crack at this again? we'll give you all the support that you need. I said, uh, yeah, OK. And I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I didn't win it, um, but I nearly doubled the vote, which wasn't bad. We had a, a turnout almost as high as in general elections. Uh, I gave my Labour opponent, who was the incumbent, the, the fright of her life. <laughs> uh, we conducted everything in a very uh, polite and and... I would say almost gentlemanly way, uh, which was very different from previous elections where there'd been a lot of nastiness. Uh, I think we, we established better standards and it would have been great if I'd been able to win it. But, um, you know, that's what elections are like. I've fought 10 and I've won six and lost four. Don't think I want to have another go.
1: As you say, you lost your beloved husband, John, last November. How are you bearing up and how is life after him?
0: Um, it, it's always difficult. If you've got, uh, you know, the love of your life and you've been married for 20 years, had the time of your life, both of you. Uh, I was the third Mrs. Jones. Uh, His, uh, his first marriage was when he was very young and that ended in divorce after having two sons. And his second marriage was a wonderful one that lasted 25 years until Francis died of cancer. And she brought with her Two boys, so I have four stepsons, and I have two daughters of my own with my first husband. uh, My daughters, one lives in London, one lives nearby. Um, I've acquired two new grandchildren during lockdown, which I haven't actually physically seen yet. Looking forward to that very much indeed. So it leaves a a huge gap, but uh, if if you've done your best, if you've cared for somebody, and we had him at home. Because of COVID, he couldn't go into hospital, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise. So we had all the equipment here, carers and so on. He was nearly 80. Um, and that means that there isn't any kind of horrible guilt feeling. I'm, I, I'm not beating myself up that we did, we weren't able to help him. We were able to do everything necessary. Um, but it leaves you with big gaps. You know, your social life is completely different. We would always do things together. And he was the sociable one. Believe it or not, I'm quite introverted and a bit shy in my own little way. And uh, so I've had to be the one picking up the phone and saying to people, all right, we can go and eat out. Let's go and do that. Friends have been absolutely wonderful. Friends have been marvellous. I so appreciate them.
1: How did it work between you two? What was the chemistry? Why was it so successful?
0: I think it worked because we uh, had quite a lot in common, actually. Uh, John had grown up in Port Sunlight uh, on the Wirral and had been a Birkenhead bobby for the first six years of his career. He was a police officer. Um, and we could both say Birkenhead properly, <laughs> you know.
1: There's that lovely story you tell about an elocution lesson, I think, which I heard the other day, which made me laugh about
0: it. I can tell it now. It, it, uh, I went to the Liverpool Institute High School for Girls um, Paul McCartney and George Harrison went to the Liverpool Institute for Boys, which was just over the road, uh, which was the first one to be founded. And in those days, uh, they used to do their best to turn you into um, uh, young ladies with received pronunciation, and they decided they were going to have an elocution teacher, and bless her cotton socks, she did try, and she would say, say black, girls. And we said, black, 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 who say it. She only laughs at one lesson. John was exactly the same. He could, he, It wasn't that he could do the Liverpool accent. It, it, he'd arrested people like that. And um, he had, um, he'd, he'd stayed in Birkenhead for six years and then realised that it's only a small force, only 450 officers, that you either joined the Orange Lodge or you joined the Masons or you didn't get on and you'd be a constable all your life. Working, working on the docks. And he, he decided instead that he wanted uh, something more, more more, ambitious. And so he applied to the Met. He applied to London as an aide to CID and spent the rest of his, uh, another, another 30 years as a detective. So the great thing about him was that you could say to him, effectively you were saying to him, tell us a story. You'd say, what was your worst case? What was the hardest case? Who was the biggest nut to crack? Um, when did you travel furthest on a case? That kind of thing. And he'd be off. And you just pour him another glass of wine and keep him going. And it was wonderful. It was like having my own Inspector Morse uh, on tap. Lovely man.
1: You've said of your mother that she could have, maybe should have been an MP, a, a politician, w- why so?
0: Well, my parents, um, one was born in 1910, my father and my mother was 1912. And they both grew up in very restricted circumstances. Their parents uh, were Eastern European immigrants, um, not earning very much, very respectable, very solid uh, members of their own community. But there was such a lot of poverty and Liverpool in particular uh, suffered from it very greatly. And so they, basically, they had to leave school at the earliest opportunity. My dad was apprenticed as a tailor and my mum managed to stay on at school to 14. People were leaving school at 11 then, but she stayed on till she was 14. Then there was a new baby in the family and there had to be another wage. And both of them, in a different world at different times, would have gone on to college and had their ambitions recognised and encouraged and that did not happen for either of them so my dad lived and died as a tailor and mum eventually went back to work at the age of 63 after he passed away and found herself effectively running a stockbroker's office. Um, She became bunny mother to all the young women who were working there. She used to tell me all their troubles and I'd say to her mum I didn't realise you knew about this aspect of sex or that. Oh, she said, well, no, it's what the girls talk about in the office. And she was in her 70s.
1: Was there a particular personality trait that you think that would have made her a good MP?
0: Um, I, I think either of them could have done that. My, my dad, I think, was quite interested. And he used to go down to the pier head and they had the equivalent of Speaker's Corner down there. And he would get on soapboxes. I was told, in the 1930s and make speeches. But even then, to be a Labour MP, even for the, uh, the great uh, Labour landslide of 1945, you needed to have backing. You needed somebody, would be the trade unions. And he wasn't a trade unionist because he was in a sweatshop industry. It was a different world entirely. And so that opportunity uh, never arose. As for my mum, um, she was much more of a conciliator. And she'd have been a good MP as a backbencher, I think, figuring out how to get things done. She'd have been enormously popular in her constituency. They would have absolutely adored her. But for them, politics was, uh, it was uh, particularly after the war. I was born immediately after the war. Liverpool was completely traumatised by the war. The Jewish community is absolutely... Uh, it was both physically flattened and it was um, emotionally very, very challenged. And I, I didn't realise how traumatised until many, many years later. Now, what that meant was that the communities were very wary of governments. Uh, the German government had destroyed six million of our people um, The Polish government, the French government had collapsed at the first uh, signs of force. They were very wary of the promises that were made. And I grew up being taught that I was going to have to uh, rely on my own energy and strength and that the idea that governments are going to do everything just wasn't going to happen.
1: Didn't your father used to actually sort of put the paper in front of you and say things like, sort out these problems. What are you going to do, even as quite a young girl?
0: His way of communicating with his oldest daughter, his rather bookish eldest uh, child, um, was exactly that. Be- because we were kosher, I got permission not to have school dinners, but to go instead to his workshop in town and uh, have a sandwich with him. And um, his way of, of communicating was to throw the news chronicle at me and say, look what they're up to now. Yeah, this is terrible. And we'd argue about it.
1: He was a socialist, wasn't he? He
0: had been. But by the time I was a teenager, I think he was a bit of a plague on both our houses. He felt that uh, everyone was letting the people down. And he was right. I mean, Liverpool was sliding into anarchy and chaos. It was losing population as fast as Belfast. And those of us at sixth form level, Uh, with one or two exceptions like Derek Hatton, who's been in the news again recently. Um, We kind of knew that if we were going to make it in any way, we were going to have to leave. We had a reunion for school back in uh, 1994. It was the 150th anniversary of its foundation. And we realised to our astonishment that the entire sixth form had gone. They were all over the world. They'd scattered. And, of course, what that meant was the city lost many, many people who in better circumstances would have stayed and helped to run it it's doing fine now it's doing much better now it's quite an exciting place to visit
1: I think it's fair to describe you as a strong robust person but you must have had to summon up every bit of that strength to stand against the wishes of your father when marrying your first husband Ray how bruising an experience was that
0: well I had a long time to prepare for it because I knew that my parents would never accept anyone that I married who wasn't from our community. And this will uh, ring bells with people from the Sikh community, from uh, Muslims, from uh, many other groups. But what did they
1: feel that you were standing against? Was it culture? Was it religion?
0: It was both. It was both. A book was written uh, not that long ago by Jonathan Sachs when he was the chief rabbi saying, um, will we have Jewish grandchildren? Because so many uh, young Jewish people were marrying out and bringing up their children outside uh, Judaism that there were really considerable worries about it. I mean, they, they turned out to be unfounded because the Haredi communities have eight, nine, ten children, and so their numbers have grown dramatically. But there's no doubt that in my lifetime, the nature of, of the culture has changed uh, very, very considerably. Um, I mean, my family were strict and observant, but um, relaxed, they they weren't forever calling on God in their lives, and they were not discriminating against women, and they didn't expect women to spend all their time in the kitchen. That kind of thing. It's quite common for uh, women to be running running businesses in the community that I grew up in, um, and it was quite common for women to be MPs. And we had a woman MP on the front page of the Liverpool Echo all the time. I was a kid, so the the, the, the To come back to your question about my dad and and, uh, my getting married, I knew he wasn't going to accept it. I always knew, from about 10 or 11 or 12.
1: But did you think that he would eventually come round to the reality of the situation?
0: I thought he wouldn't come round, but we had to give him a chance. I explained all this to Ray, and he thought this was medieval and nonsense. So he went and talked to my dad. Uh, one Sunday morning in dad's workshop in in private and I kind of hung around waiting for him and he came out Ray and he was kind of white and shaking and he said you're absolutely right Um, he said I'd make a great son-in-law but except for this and uh, I said fine okay that's job done where would your family like us to get married and he said oh that's easy parish church in uh, in south molton in devon that's fine then that's what we'll do at least one of these families will accept the spouse of one of their child and uh, and that's what we did and, and
1: did your mother attend the ceremony herself
0: um no um, I, it's not quite true to say none of my family attended my mother didn't come my brother didn't come but my mother's uh, older brother, my Uncle Sam, had also married out. But in his uh, wonderful way, he'd simply stayed in touch with the family. He simply wasn't going to be ostracized. And um, he contacted me and said, Who's giving you away? I said, Nobody's giving me away. He said, I want to give you away. So he and Auntie Jean came down to the wedding um, and they wowed everybody. Because was very handsome and she was very pretty. And they really, you know, oh, my goodness, this is your uncle, Edwina. Yes. <laughs> um, and there was a moment when we might have had a reconciliation, to be honest, Ian. Um, after I'd had my first baby, I took her up to Liverpool to go and see my mum. And did that by going up to my brother's house. And my dad brought mum in the car and sat outside in the car while mum came in. Now, if I had been a better person, I would have taken my baby and walked out to the car and said, ''Hiya, Dad. Here's your granddaughter.'' And I don't know what he would have said. Probably ignored me, which would have really hurt. But I'm not that person, and I thought to myself, ''Do you know what? I'm happily married. I've got a baby. I have a new home. Uh, I've got jobs and roles that I absolutely love. He's the loser. He's the loser in this. If he wants to, he can come in with mum and he doesn't. So I'm not going to take that step. And he died um, eight months later, suddenly.
1: And how did you feel confronted with that?
0: I was very sorry that we hadn't reconciled because he was so intelligent and so thoughtful. Um, But it was inevitable. Uh, If I was going to please him, I wasn't gonna please myself.
1: I want to take you back to your time as an MP. You became really quite high profile very quickly. And I wonder what you attribute that to. Was it the fact that you were prepared to speak your mind? Was it the fact that you were a big personality? Or was it the fact that you were a woman MP?
0: I think it was mostly being a woman, which made us very visible. There were uh, 13 Conservative women MPs and 10 Labour. The 13 included Margaret Thatcher. And I came in at her second uh, election, which in the context of the time was astonishing. She won a majority of 144.
1: And this would have been just after the Falklands?
0: Or? It was. It was just after the Falklands, but it was also... We had a very clear manifesto, and it was a manifesto for change, and she embodied that. Uh, and I also had a coal mining constituency. Um, I wasn't the only Tory with a coal mining constituency. There was quite a, a red wall that came down at that time. And That was
1: uh, South Derbyshire. That
0: was South Derbyshire. Um, I had never been to South Derbyshire before in my life. I was asked uh, what I knew about coal mining, and I said, we haven't got co- many coal mines in Liverpool or Birmingham, not a lot. Um, What what does that know about farming? The answer was nothing, but you're going to teach me. Um, And six weeks later, we had the election. So I'm straight in there. And I'm straight in there on the back of eight solid years of experience of running Birmingham. I'm the housing chairman in Birmingham with a £200 million budget. And you're talking over 30 years ago. It's a lot of money. And before that, I chaired social services. I've been responsible for four thousand children in care, uh, so and I've been on the social services committee for seven years. So I've I'd, I'd got a lot of solid background, and decided I was going to specialise in health and social services because so few Tories wanted to do that, and yet they spend the biggest budgets. And um, so I find myself making speeches and being listened to, and I was. Given the opportunities, then became a junior minister very quickly,
1: there were inevitable comparisons, I think, between you and Margaret Thatcher, but she was not keen on having you in the cabinet or indeed any other women was she
0: margaret didn 't have any women from the House of Commons in the cabinet in all her eleven years. Why do you think that was well she the only person that the only woman she had in for uh, a year was uh, Janet uh, Young, who, uh, Lady Janet Young, who she appointed as leader of the House of Lords, and Janet had been her tutor at Oxford. I think she suffered from a kind of imposter syndrome. This is my personal theory. She she was once asked, "Why don't you allow Ted Heath, who was still in the Commons, why don't you invite him into the cabinet? Why don't you give him a job, um, foreign secretary or Lord Privy Seal or something like that?" And she said, "I couldn't possibly." Ted would look at me across the table as a woman would look look at me. I couldn't have that. You know, what on earth is she talking about? And I think she thought she was a little bit of a fraud and that she got her own way with the men by flirting with them or smiling at them or whatever and that a woman would recognise that and not be nearly as easily managed. That was, it was a lot of Bollocks in, absolute rubbish. We worshipped her, we would have done anything. And she had, oh, half a dozen really talented women she could have chosen. To get to Parliament as a woman then, you really, you know, you really had to have something on offer. Um, Emma Nicholson, uh, Linda Chalker, a a number of the others were really very, very good and would have been in any normal cabinet.
1: So what was your relationship like with her on a one-to-one?
0: Well, I'd watched her activities for a very long time. Um, you know that the slight feeling you have sometimes of affinity with someone's got the same birthday as you. We were both October 13th. She was exactly tw- 21 years older than I was. And we had followed rather similar trajectories for a couple of rather obvious reasons. We both went to grammar schools. We both had dads who were small business people, uh, but who were ambitious and interested in politics. We both went to Oxford to read science and that was because it was much easier for a girl to get in to read science where they had vacancies than it was to read English or uh, an arts or humanities subject. Margaret stuck with it and in fact earned a living as an industrial chemist. Um, I discovered very quickly I wasn't any good at the lab. i break things and so I was able to switch to, to PPE and then um, uh, that, that was a real leg up as far as politics was going. But I'd watch, that meant I'd watched her from, from quite early on. And by the early 60s, when I'm really thinking hard about what I'm going to do at university, there's this young woman, scientist, Oxford, same birthday, two wee children, and she's pension minister. It meant that I knew that you could be married and a woman and a scientist and an MP, and a minister, that it had been done before. And if it could be done once, it could be done again.
1: You had so much in common. So what was that chemistry like between you?
0: She was very kind to me. I think she wanted to encourage the women, but couldn't go the the whole hog to actually putting them in the cabinet room in front of her. There was something very, very odd in her psychology about all that. But she did encourage the women and she made them junior ministers. The one big problem, however, was she never put any uh, young women into the whip's office. Now, the whip's office is a brooder bond. Uh, That's where you learn all the black arts. And um, that's where you learn how to get legislation through how to meet up with impossible odds and still be successful. And the Bruderbond would look after each other. Um, so Michael Portillo was in the Bruderbond and I wasn't. So, you know, when, when, when some of these MPs get into difficulties of one kind or another, the Bruderbond will support them. But if you've never been in it, that doesn't happen.
1: What do you see as your greatest achievement as an MP?
0: Uh, the, th- the things I'm most pleased about that I can give little ticks to were doing a lot of work on women's health and particularly the prevention of ill health. Uh, I was a junior health minister. Uh, BBC often describes me as cabinet minister. No, I wasn't. We've been through that. Um, but I was a junior minister and I was the first woman doing it for a while. I looked at my portfolio, and it included the promotion of good health, which nobody took seriously then. You got sick. It was a hospital. It was a doctor. That was all the way we did help. And um, so I did a lot of work on the prevention and asking the question, what do people die of? What amongst what we die from can we uh, perhaps uh, prevent? And what's the best way of doing this? And the answer was heart disease and so on, and cancer. And for women, the cancers then were breast cancer and cervical cancer, uh, neither of which have anything to do with smoking. as far Well, the, the cervical cancer does, but um, their, their, their transmission means are, are something else. And if they're caught early, we can treat them, cure them, and send people back to work. The mortality rate at that time for breast cancer was about 60, 65%. Uh, It's now just over 11%. And that's because we brought in breast cancer screening on a nationwide basis for all women, then between 50 and and 65. It's gone up now to 70. Um, And we brought in cervical cancer screening at the same time. And the one thing I'm really proud of is that when we had done all the costings and we'd set it all out, they said to me, Minister, which one do you want to do? And I said... Can we do both? Clearly hadn't occurred to them. They thought they were working on alternatives. So I had to go and persuade Margaret Thatcher we needed more money. And the way I tell the story was that um, she fired lots of questions at me. And I kept coming up with answers. And why is this? Where's the cost benefit in this? And I said, well, at the moment, these women are dying and it's costing a lot of money to treat them. Um, but in future, they will be cured quite quickly, possibly even as outpatients. and be able to get them back to work. They'll be paying their income tax and looking after their families. Yeah, she said. And I came out and I was exhausted. And one of my my officials said to me, are you all right, Minister? And I said, yes, yes, I'm fine. But now I know what an Egyptian mummy felt like as they drew its brain out through its nostrils with pincers.
1: I don't know if you're aware of a play by the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen, Enemy of the People, This is set in a Norwegian spa town in which a medical officer is vilified for speaking out about his concerns that the spa water is contaminated with bacteria and therefore a risk to public health. There are significant resonances with that story and your experience of the salmonella and egg scandal, aren't there?
0: Well, you know, the curious thing is that that play was actually on at the National Theatre at the time. Uh, Ray and I had got seats towards the back we used to go regularly to the National Theatre and of course now I'm not a minister I can stay late and I'm sat at the back and watching it and thinking exactly the same sort of thing that you've just said and as the theatre emptied I get a tap on my shoulder and I look round it's Trevor Nunn the, the director and he said that was you oh wow I mean, that was a moment that I cherished. I've mentioned it somewhere in the diaries, I think. Um, the thing is that if you know that there is a danger to public health and all the numbers are, are looking bad and you're the health minister or you have some responsibility, as the doctor does in Ibsen or as Dr Snow did with cholera in London in the 1860s, I think it was, uh, you, you have a duty to do it. You have. You can't walk away.
1: But it's not just a, a, a play about people doing their duty or speaking out. It's also about people trying to suppress the truth. You were subsequently, many years later, vindicated what you said was true. Were you misrepresented, do you think, at the oh, time? Oh, it was
0: very complex. I mean, at the time, you're always quite bewildered. Uh, if, if you believe that most people um, are, are people of goodwill, then when you speak out you assume that uh, they will act on it, that the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food will say, whoops, you know, we have a problem. Uh, this is, in fact, what happened in Sweden. Whoops, we have a problem. Uh, we've got salmonella in uh, that has mutated. Uh, you can't tell from looking at the chickens, but uh, when you start testing the eggs, there's a problem and um, we need to do something about it. But they didn't. To my total astonishment, Math said, a load of nonsense can't be a load of nonsense you know we've got the data here uh and people in the public health laboratory service were, were, were tearing their hair out about it. it can't be nonsense um it took a long time for official recognition um I, I think public recognition came very quickly i was inundated with letters i remember we had five thousand letters in one day and this is long before emails and so on And I came in to find my poor secretary uh, sitting on the floor of the office, surrounded by sackfuls of letters, just in floods of tears. She said, how am I going to open all these? So I went down the corridor and I got other people's assistance. I said, £10 an hour, go and open uh, open these letters and put them in piles and all the rest of it. You know. And I uh, answered all of them. I sent everybody a card or something uh, back saying thank you. And they were 99% uh, Supported mostly from people who'd been ill or had nursed somebody who was ill. It was a horrible form of uh, food poisoning, it knocked out the kidneys. You know, we're, we're familiar with how infections can damage other organs now with COVID. Uh, we had. Every kidney dialysis machine in the country was in use. Um, we had people with brain abscesses. Uh, we had children that were dying. Oh, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. The whole thing was a, 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 a nightmare experience for them. And there am I trying to do something about it. Um, I, I think it probably helped the reception of my books a little bit later because a lot of sympathetic <laughs> people wanting me to succeed. The egg industry were... Eventually, absolutely wonderful, I have to say this. Ten years later, they came to me and said, You were right, and we're trying to do something about it. Will you help us? And I said, Well, I'm not a biologist, but when you can say to me that uh, eggs in Britain are not contaminated any longer, I will tell everybody. And it took them another three or four years after that, till 2004 before they were able to say it's done it's our our lion eggs are the safest in the world and i've worked with them ever since and all i said i don't want any money i absolutely not i have an egg cup from them you
1: lost your seat in the great labour rout of 1997 which swept the blair government to power do you feel that the conservatives might have had a chance to continue in power Had there been a different prime minister at the helm after Margaret
0: Thatcher? Now, that's, you know, one of the great what ifs of politics. I think if Michael Heseltine had been in office, it might have been very different. Um, The wheel turns. By the time we get to 1997, we've been in office 18 years, 18 solid years. and The Labour Party have gone through an enormous revolution in... um, getting rid of a lot of the power of the unions, a lot of uh, the clause Four, the assumption that everything has to be in public ownership as it it had been in the 1960s and 70s. They were ready to rule in a much more pragmatic way. And um, that was going to... They they were going to appeal on the basis of give us a chance.
1: Had you lost belief in the message that you had so supported?
0: Well, the, the, the problem for the Tories was that Thatcherism was a very, very clear philosophy and style and in some ways John Major was elected as leader because it was believed he would carry carry on the agenda but with a a softer gentler style. Um, In fact we didn't realise that John didn't have an agenda of his own at all so as the period extends into the 1990s and we face big challenges he was floundering. He was floundering, and he didn't have the strength of personality, I reckon, bearing in mind I knew him very well, um, to overcome these enormous hurdles. A a lot of politics and leadership is about personality. Margaret had it. Macmillan didn't. Uh, John Major didn't. Blair had it. Gordon Brown, for all his talents, didn't. It's an intangible, but it's something that the public understand immediately, And the moment you start door knocking and somebody comes to the door and says, I always like Margaret Thatcher and I like Boris. You like Boris? I like Boris. That's when you know it. You can weigh it in kilograms, but it's very, very difficult to quantify.
1: Do you have it?
0: Uh, Possibly, but um, that was a long time ago. Goodness.
1: (laughs) You say that you knew John Major very well. You had a relationship, an affair with, with him. It was, it's been well documented. This was before he became Prime Minister, of course. But it was very much a private matter. You've spoken about how you both spoke to nobody about it, and it was kept effectively very secret. What prompted you, many years later, to make it public in the way that you did?
0: Well, by the time I, I published Diaries in 2002. By the time we get to 2002, I have remarried. Uh, The Labour Party has won two elections with huge majorities. Uh, The Tory Party is not in great shape and um, isn't really sure what its views are on almost anything. And uh, John Major published his memoirs, which covered those years, particularly when he was Prime Minister, in which he's um, busy saying that... uh, Nothing was his fault. It was, you know, events, dear boy, events. It was beyond his control. It's a load of nonsense. And part of the problem was, and particularly from 93, 94 onwards, was uh, the whole campaign on Back to Basics. Now, Back to Basics was bad news. Back to Basics was translated as being uh, back to family values. All right.
1: Do you think some of it was slightly puritanical?
0: Some of it was anti-gay. Some of it was particularly anti-Portillo or anti-some others who were seen as gay. There was an element of persecution in it. It was offensive and the public sussed it immediately. The newspapers went berserk and before you knew it, the private lives of all the ministers were all over the papers. Now I'm talking about back in 1994-95. And it was entirely John Major's fault, because when it was suggested at a cabinet meeting or campaign meeting, he should have said very firmly, no, we can't hold up a mirror to the outside world if we don't look at that mirror ourselves. And it's the wrong thing to do. And um, there he was, busy whitewashing his own history. And I thought to myself, damn you, sir. You know, it's about time the truth came out about all of this. It's not going to do any damage now. It's not going to bring a government down, um, but it's important that politics is cleansed by knowing what really happened. So, when I looked at the diaries and talked about them with my editor, he said, "I think you should leave that in." And I thought about it for a long time. Talked about it with John, my John James, my husband. Go for it. Why not? Nothing to lose.
1: Did John Major know that you were going to publish them? Did you warn him?
0: Um, We warned him, I think it was two nights before the first extract appeared in the Sunday Times.
1: And his response?
0: It was the episode in his life which he was most ashamed of, which produced derision amongst a lot of people, you know. And um, it was... Um it was a very odd reaction. Very odd reaction. Anyway, um then there it, it was out there, and at that point also a number of people who had not been well treated by him also came forward with other stories. I don't think his um uh, I don't think his carefully um curated image was quite as pristine after that.
1: There's this lovely story that you tell, your your then teenage daughters were surprised that it was John Major and not someone more glamorous. <laughs> so what was the allure?
0: I think somebody who was um, actually quite nice to me. And bear in mind that, you know, life in Parliament is quite tough anyway. It's a highly competitive place. And um, to be spoken to civilly, to be treated um well to be treated without this constant, constant reference to you you're a girl you're a woman you should be at home looking after your kids that kind of thing um to be treated treated as an equal was wonderful and again we had odd things in common we had both been housing chair in our respective boroughs he had been on uh, i think hoban and st pancras council and a chaired housing which is a very exciting thing to be doing um you know, moving people around, trying to improve their housing and that sort of thing. Um, and we're both outsiders. Uh, he came from very straightened circumstance, had to leave school at 16. And yet he'd managed to acquire the patina of somebody who had been to public school, um, was well liked, was uh, respected, uh, and at that point was a compromiser, Could could always get things done. Um, And he was a nice bloke. And I suppose we both had various urges and needs, and it turned out to be uh, quite easy to get on with.
1: I'd like to bring you back to music. You released a single, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, the old wham classic, with Declan Donnelly. I can't find it anywhere. Is that a good thing, do you think?
0: Uh, uh, probably. Although, actually, Anthony Costa did most of the singing, I think. Um, this was Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. And um, we were in two teams. I'm, I'm not sure I can remember who the others were. I do remember Anthony Costa, who can sing.
1: Are you a musician, would you say?
0: I have no hand eye coordination, so I could never learn to play anything. I can't play. Tennis or anything like that, you know, I know what I tried golf once. I know what I'm supposed to do. The only sport I've ever been able to do is on a bike where all you have to do is move the pedals, you know.
1: But can you sing?
0: Can I sing? Um, I try. I have done. I was in the synagogue choir when I was six and seven years old. Um, and it's something I might do again. Uh, John was member of Tideswell Male Voice Choir. And I was the president for ten years, and um, now he's gone. I'm thinking, do you know what? Maybe I'll join a choir, a ladies' choir, in my in my own right. But I need to find one that doesn't expect too high a standard.
1: Well, it's time for your visit to the Politics of Sound record shop. You're going to get to pick three of your all-time favourite albums. We want to hear all about them and the stories associated with them for you. Are you ready to go into the shop, Edwina?
0: <laughs> I am.
1: So, Edwina, how was your visit to the Politics of Sound record shop? Oh,
0: I found one of my own early records that I saved up for, saved my pocket money and my Saturday job money for. And
1: which record is that?
0: And that is um, With the Beatles, 1963. Um, It was the second one, I think, that they brought out, because they brought out Please Please Me, and that was a bit of a rush job. But the, the great thing about with the Beatles was that it had quite a lot of the standards that we'd been used to hearing them sing down in the cavern Um, I I liked You Really Got a Hold on Me which is Smokey Robinson number I don't like
1: you used to go down to the cavern and see them
0: oh gosh yes i remember for years um when Silla black was the hat check girl if you put your coat in and then you realize you'd left your purse or your handkerchief in there she'd get it out for you and then you'd have to pay again to put it back in again
1: there's this story about the cavern that it used to be i think an old cheese store i think and that when when everybody used to leap around and jump around and go to all these concerts, all these gigs that the walls would literally sweat. Was it like
0: that? Oh yeah. It was foul. Absolutely foul. It was under the fruit and vegetable market. Um, the one they've got now is further down Matthew street and it's, it's safer. It's got two entrances and exits for a start. Um, but it was it stung to high heaven, partly because of all the sweat and partly because of what was dribbling down the walls coming from the rotten fruit and veg on top. And what we used to do was, well, certainly what I used to do, I mentioned that I had uh, lunch with my father. Well, there would be occasions when school thought I was at my dad's and my dad thought I was at school at lunchtime. And I'd take a black neck sweater, which is still one of my favourite garments, and i pull it on over my school uniform with a tie and um, turn my blazer inside out and shove it under a chair uh, and go and uh, bounce around for an hour or so and then run up the hill back to school. These were lunchtime gigs? These were lunchtime gigs, yeah. And, um, yeah, because I wasn't allowed out in the evenings. It wouldn't have been... We lived a long way from the centre of town, so it wouldn't have been too safe coming back. Plus, I had homework for the next day. Um, So lunchtime was fine, and I'd come back in, it'd be double chemistry, and the smell would be in my hair, and everyone would go, oh, we know where you've been. Who was on? Who was playing today?
1: And who was playing?
0: Uh, The big three, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Freddie and the Dreamers, I think. There were loads. Oh, uh, Farron's flamingos. There were there were loads and loads on them. There were about three hundred different groups um, in the in the uh, in the pool at that time.
1: Do I love you all the time? All the time. Do I want you to be mine? To be mine. Yes, I do.
0: Yes, I do. You know I do. Do I dream of you each night? Uh, my dad, being a tailor, had various groups coming to to his workshop to get suits made. And I remember one occasion, he came home with a bolt of bright green velvet cloth. And he said, some of your friends, uh, came, your friends into, came into the shop today and they want suits made of this. He said, and it's silk velvet. It means I'm going to have to make a twirl for each of them. And one of them is a little fat guy. I'm going to have to put an elastic piece in the trousers. He's going to look like a fat frog. And he said, and they said, Mr. Epstein will pay for them. Do you think he will? And I said, oh, yes, Dad, I'm sure he will. Um, Brian Epstein's a his word.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Beatles would have been about five or six years older than you. You obviously saw them around Liverpool, but did you know them? Did you speak to them?
0: Well, um, Paul is... I think four years older than me, and George was younger.
1: He was the young one. Uh,
0: We used to see them hanging round on the street corner because uh, John's flat was just up the road in Gambia Terrace with uh, Cynthia, his wife, and they used to hang about at the Yates Wine Lodge as well, which is just a a few yards away, down a a narrow crack of an old street nearby. This is all on Hope Street in Liverpool. They would wear black leather trousers. They were very skinny. They were very dirty, mostly grubby. And they had cigarettes. The the style was Jean-Paul Belmondo, you know, sort of French and and, and that kind of thing.
1: Very sophisticated.
0: Oh, so cool. So absolutely dripping with cool. Um, And they acquired a lot of their style, of course, when they went to Hamburg. And I can remember my friend June coming running down the corridor in the summer of 1962 saying, they're back, they're back. They're back. Who's back? The Beatles are back. Where are they back from? They're back from Hamburg.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's some great, great songs on that album. Do you have any particular favourites?
0: Oh, my goodness. I would want the whole lot, I think. Um, All My Loving is wonderful. The McCartney. And um, You Really Got a Hold on Me, Smokey Robinson. Roll Over Beethoven. Roll Over Beethoven is classic cavern. Roll Over Beethoven. Yeah. (laughs)
1: The Beatles, sound was evolving throughout the 60s and, of course, changed significantly towards the end of their career. Did you remain a fan throughout that time?
0: Not entirely. Um, I I love Sgt. Pepper. That was the most. And I did seriously think about choosing Sgt. Pepper, but it's a bit obvious if you like the Beatles. Um, John Lennon lost me a bit once he went off with Yoko, although... The recent celebrations of the eight, what would have been his 80th birthday, some wonderful programmes about John Lennon at 80. And I think I understood him a little better. But those of us who were in love with Paul always felt that John rather betrayed him and let him down.
1: Well, I was going to ask you who your favourite Beatle was, and I was going to wager that actually John would have been your favourite. Why Paul?
0: Oh, no, Paul, because he's gorgeous. He's still gorgeous.
1: Well, as you know, on this podcast, we have our own... Politics of Soundhouse Band, and I'm going to join them now. We're going to play the last track on the album. That's the wonderful Money. That's what I want. Here we go. That's the politics of sound band with money. That's what I want. Originally from the album with the Beatles, which was the choice of my guest, Edwina Curry. So, Edwina, what's your second choice from the politics of sound record
0: shop? Um, well, my second choice is uh, the, the wonderful Dolly Parton. Um oh. And and the particular one that I I want the the best of the greatest hits of Dolly Parton. There's lots of different versions of it. I like the 1983 one that's got um, Islands in the Stream.
1: It was originally released in 1982. And then I think they released it again or reissued it again with that particular track on it because it had been such a big, big hit. Why do you love that so much?
0: Um, A lot of this is about Dolly. She has the most wonderful voice. She is a superb musician. You know, she writes most of her own stuff and she always has done. Um, she's a, a great, successful, positive lady. And yet she manages to do it without upsetting anybody. Um, you know, that's a real talent. She she's a politician of, of, a, of a superb ability, I reckon, as well as a great uh, musician and songstress. I love the way that she never she doesn't campaign for feminism. But she's a successful woman, which makes it easier for other successful women, very successful business woman um, at all stages in her, particularly in her earlier life. I think she learned as much as she possibly could and then figured out if that's where she wanted to stay or move on.
1: She was born into extraordinary poverty, the fourth of 12 children, and they lived in this one room cabin on the banks of the Little Pigeon River in Tennessee. And her father paid the doctor who delivered her with a bag of oatmeal. She had a homemade guitar at the age of eight. And there she was appearing at the Grand Old Opry at the age of 13. Quite amazing.
0: Yeah. And I love I love her attitude to uh, who she is and the image she creates when she says it costs a lot of money to look this cheap. (laughs) I used to use a, a, a quote from her when I was talking about Margaret Thatcher. Because Dolly said, I don't care when they call me a dumb blonde because I know I'm not dumb and I'm not blonde either.
1: You've talked about Dolly Parton's voice. I mean, her record label originally felt that her voice was unsuitable for country music. They thought it had too much vibrato.
0: <laughs> How wrong can you be?
1: I think they kind of realised that. There's there's a lovely, lovely story about her also. She married her husband, Carl Thomas Dean, in 1966. They've been married for nearly 55 years. Yet she, apparently he's only seen her perform once, or so she says. That must be apocryphal, surely.
0: I believe everything Dolly says. I don't think she tells lies. I don't think she manufactures anything. She doesn't need to. Her life is, is quite extraordinary as it is. And I suspect that having a home and having somebody at home that really loves her and just loves her as a person, um, that's always been something very, very precious for her. And so she could be the performer, put the wig on and become the performer, And then when she gets home, takes the wig off and uh, she's just Dolly. And yet there's something going on in her mind the whole time. She's very generous. You know, she gives money to all sorts of causes and she does it without making a big fuss about it. I, I like that very much. Um, when, um, whenever I was driving around in the constituency, I would uh, often have Dolly playing and encouraging me on on the music. But more recently, I now have a fifteen year old granddaughter, who plays guitar, and knows every word of the Dolly songs, all of them. And we sing along in the guitar to in the car to Jolene or whatever else we feel like singing to. Jolene.
1: I think your reasons for picking the Beatles album are very obvious, but this one's a little bit more intriguing. What is it about Dolly Parton? Is it Dolly Parton, the personality, the musician? Is it a particular track?
0: I want—I wanted uh, one of the albums that have got some of my favourites on. Um, Old Flames Can't Hold a Candle to You. Um, Applejack. Oh yes, definitely. Islands in the Stream <laughs> is just wonderful. Um, Two Doors Down... When you feel you're out of it, they're laughing and having a party uh, and nothing's happening up here. And best of all, I Will Always Love You, which reputedly she wrote as she left Porter Wagoner's show to go on to do um, her own thing. But, of course, it became associated with Whitney Houston, with her sad life. Ah, just, ah, ah, ah. You know, you can't listen to that and not be moved. And the way Dolly does it, and the sort of little spoken bit in the middle. We, when, when Zoe and I are doing it in the car, we do the spoken bit in exactly the same way. I hope life treats you kind.
1: And I hope that you have all that you ever dreamed of. And I wish you joy. But above all of this I wish you love She recently re-recorded a version of Jolene called Vaccine. Did you see this? Encouraging everyone to get the COVID jab. It's, it was very effective. It's also quite funny.
0: Uh, typical Dolly. Absolutely typical Dolly. That she, I think she gave money for a vaccination programme in her neighbourhood as well, didn't she? Um, it's not that the money mattered. It's the fact that Dolly Parton wants you to do this. That will make a difference. That will save lives.
1: Well, I'm going to join the Politics of Sound band once more now. We're going to play one of the great ballads from that album, and that's It's All Wrong, But It's All Right. That was the Politics of Sound band there with It's All Wrong, But It's All Right by Dolly Parton, the choice of Edwina Curry. Edwina, we come to your last album choice now. What's the album?
0: I got it in my hand.
1: And it looks very much like Queen Greatest Hits. Yes,
0: yes, yes. This is a CD version, but um, uh, I did have the the LP. It's just I've got the CD now because... Played it in the car, and now we all have Spotify and all that kind of thing. What
1: is it uh, about Queen that fascinates you?
0: Fabulous harmonies, fabulous original music. Um, the, 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 the they're very melodic, they're hugely diverse. Um, the guitar is amazing. I've actually touched that guitar when I did. Strictly Come Dancing, one of the other competitors was Anita Dobson, who, of course, is Mrs May, Brian May. Brian was there in the background encouraging her almost the whole time uh, that she was dancing. She did very, very well. And he brought the guitar, the Queen guitar, and we were all able to just touch it.
1: He made it, didn't he? He constructed it himself, I think, with his father.
0: Well, he's, he's a cosmic dust specialist. You know, I mean, most of the Queen people met not Freddie, but the others, when they were PhD students at Imperial College, they are ferociously clever people. Anita Mm -hmm. called him Dr. May. And I said, what's his doctorate in? I think it might be music. And she said, cosmic dust.
1: I think it's astrophysics or something like that. Yes, extremely clever man.
0: Yes, yes. And they wear their, um, their brilliance very, very lightly. We were talking earlier about how people sometimes leave Parliament and then go on to be successful at other things. And I think Queen also showed that you can be very successful in other worlds and absolutely top world-class pioneering and ambitious uh, musicians as well. Um, You take something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which nobody understood at first. And actually, if you get to know it very well, John's choir sang it. So I knew all the cadences and all the rest of it. And it's, um, it's a mad, crazy mixture. It exactly matches the time, the period uh, in which it was produced. Scaramouche, Scaramouche. Yeah.
1: You've just um. passed your audition for the choir. <laughs> it was the fourth best-selling album of the 1980s. And although it came out early in the 1980s, it continued to sell very, very well throughout that decade, largely in the latter part of it because of their performance at Live Aid. Do you remember where you were when they did that? That was a pretty musically, at least, historical moment.
0: I think I was watching it on telly. Like most other people, how many billion people around the world actually watched it on TV? Um, And the recent film, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, which starts and ends at that, captures it exactly right. And and actually captures the emotion and the drama. Uh, I mean, I don't... We didn't know that Freddie was dying. The only person that knew Freddie was dying was Freddie. And it makes some of the other songs like I Want to Live Forever so much more poignant when you realise that he knew he was dying. Um, And, you know, Don't Stop Me Now, that was so much Freddie. I'm having a good time. I'm having uh, having a ball. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. It was... Now I listen to the songs uh, with a little bit of heartache, but at the time it was uh, the raciest, excite- most exciting, most dramatic, most, oh, just just go with it. Just go with it. I liked them right from the beginning. I liked um, um, Fat Bottom Girls and Bicycle Race. And many years later when I was doing long distance bike rides for charity, we used to pedal along in the, street, the, 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 the rural roads of Moscow or Egypt or wherever we happen to find ourselves with me sing fat bottom girls, you know, that kind of thing
1: I don't think they'd be allowed to have a song like that now.
0: Well, they'd find other ways of uh, going up yours, wouldn't they?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever see Queen live at all?
0: No, I don't think I did I wish I had, but then In many ways you want to listen to the music going to a concert isn't the place to do it Because you can't hear anything. You go to a concert, it's all, you know, you want to listen to the music
1: but the Beatles couldn't be heard because there were people like you screaming at them. <laughs> were you one of the people who were screaming?
0: Um, I would say not. Probably.
1: <laughs> I'm going to get on the piano now and, and along with the politics of Bam, we're going to play a version of a track from the Greatest Hits album. It's that 1976 single, Somebody to Love.
0: Politics of Sound. If
1: you enjoy the Politics of Sound podcast, then why not check out the Debated podcast? With over 126 episodes worth of content, you'll be sure to find something that you like. At the moment, we're doing regular episodes alongside our special mini-series looking at local election winners, why they won, what prompted them to stand, and what you could learn about how the political map of Britain is changing thanks to the local elections. So make sure to check out The Debated Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Edwina, do you see yourself returning to the political fray in the near future? You have a new life now. Would you become an MP again? Would you try to become an MP again?
0: Uh, No, I think you have to be realistic about these things. Um, I will be 75 later this year and uh, although i come from a long-lived family apart from my dad um i think the the sheer stamina that you need to be an mp and going backwards and forwards on the train down to london and so on it does require somebody much younger and um, our local mp it's a red wall seat here in the high peak yeah. it's rob largan he's just over 30 He's about the same age as my grandchildren. Um, And I can tell you the sheer hard slug of fighting marginal seats is probably beyond me now. Um, So I can sit back and relax a bit. I'm president of the local conservatives. I do my best to help them and support them, Um, usually through WhatsApp these days, isn't it? And I love doing Twitter and Facebook. And when I feel I want to have a rant, I have the freedom now of not worrying about if I upset anybody. I tell you, it's a genuine freedom and I relish it and I use it.
1: And what would you say to the 20 year old Edwina? What advice would you give to her?
0: Oh, keep going. You'll get there. You'll get there and you'll enjoy it.
1: Edwina Curry, thanks so much for being my guest on The Politics of Sound.
0: My pleasure. The Politics of Sound.
1: You've been listening to the July edition of The Politics of Sound with me, Ian Carnegie, and my guest, Edwina Curry. Joining me in the band this month was the guitarist Jeff Sprackling. And don't forget to subscribe to The Politics of Sound wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on the 1st of August with another edition of The Politics of Sound. So in the meantime, keep dry and have a good month.